Chapter Five of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Five: The Reporter of the Item. How John Fenton achieved a pair of trousers and attempted assault and battery unsuccessfully, but was rescued by a chubby scribbler. There was an instant's hush when Fenton finished. His charm and personality had carried his hearers along with absorbed attention but he had little practice in impromptu romances and his tale could scarcely convince the crowd of men before him who were used to all manner of picturesque narratives so as fenton sat down a gust of laughter applauded him they had been well entertained by his freak of fancy but not enough to contribute the funds he had hoped might be his reward he made another tentative appeal but a cynical laugh was his only answer and the company began to break. Men rose and yawned, started to look for their hats, and began talking with one another. The president came forward and laid his massive hand on Fenton's shoulder. Very good, lad. You nearly got us going, and that's no joke for a beginner. We'll have to have you round again. Nothing like new blood. Well, good night, kid. Come round whenever you feel like hitting the pipe. But how the devil am I to get out of here? Fenton asked anxiously. I can't go this way. If I can't borrow any money, I might at least get a pair of trousers. Oh, I guess Garish will fix you up all right, said the president easily, and he turned away and began to turn out the lamps. The cab driver had already come and joined them. I got an old pair of overalls, if that'll do you any good, he suggested. Fenton jumped at the proposal, for indeed it would enable him to kill two birds with one stone. If he could get the cab driver alone, he was determined to gain the locket, and when he might restore it to its owner, and then discover, if possible, the secret of his old memories of the trinket. He accepted Garish's offer, therefore, and after farewells to those of the club who had not already gone, he left and went down a flight of stairs with the cabby. He had already measured his man with his eye. Garish was a gin-soaked, obese wreck, and Fenton felt sure of being able to overcome him in a fair fight. He watched carefully, and knew that the driver had slipped the locket into a lower vest pocket. It should be easy to gain possession of it. First, however, the overalls must be secured. They went down into a stable next door, now tenanted only by a few sorry nags and two disreputable-looking cabs. It was lit by an oil lamp on a bracket. Garish went to a locker in the rear, beside a small door in the wall, and drew out the garment. The overalls were of brown denim, streaked with oil and spotted with dirt, but they would at least cover his bare shins. Fenton drew them on, watching the man sharply. When he was clad, he maneuvered toward a wagon stave that was lying on the floor, seized it, and whirled suddenly upon the cab driver. Now then, he exclaimed harshly, give me that locket it's mine garish looked up at him through bleary eyes well you son of a plumber he ejaculated and then with remarkable agility and force his foot shot out caught his opponent in the diaphragm and fenton dropped doubled up with the wind knocked out of him before he could recover the cabby had fallen on him and was throttling him he began to punch with fervor fenton saw stars then everything went black he opened his eyes to find richmond the chubby reporter who had been ejected from the club, sitting on a keg, watching him curiously. 
Fenton sat up on the floor and looked groggily about. The cabman was lying a few feet from him, supine, with his eyes shut, evidently knocked out. The reporter smiled. Coup de savate, he said. That cabby must have come from Paris. Dirty low trick. How do you feel? Fenton rose, stretched his arms and legs, and then, recollecting his object, turned to the cabman and felt quickly in his greasy vest pockets. In one was a large nickel watch. The other was empty. I've got it, remarked the reporter. Fenton sized him up and took a step forward. Give it to me. What? The locket, of course. You say you've got it. Fenton realized now how foolish he had ever been to speak of the robbery. He resolved to humor the reporter till he could get rid of him. That story about the stolen jewels was all a joke, he added. It was no joke, son. I'm not a fool. But what about the locket? That locket, said Fenton, has something queer to do with me. I don't know just what. There's something mysterious about it, and I want it. I don't know who it belongs to, but I know I have a better right to it than you have. As for the robbery, if you want to believe in it, you may. But I won't tell you anything about it. In which case, I keep the locket, said the reporter. And now what are you going to do in that rig? I'm going to borrow a quarter from you to get up town with. Right, all right, but you'll have to earn it. Now, I'll tell you what I'll do. I've got to fool around for a half hour or so, looking for a girl a few blocks from here. Now, I don't care to hang round in the slums alone, and if you'll stay with me, I'll give you a dollar for car fare and the locket to boot when the deed is did. All I want is your name and address. Otherwise, I follow you till I find out for myself. All right. My name is John Fenton, and I live at 69 West 127th Street. We'll see. If you don't mind, I'll corroborate that. Have you anything to prove it? Fenton pulled a letter from his pocket which showed the truth of his confession. Looks all right to me, said Richmond, and he wrote it down on his cuff. Then he looked at the cabby. I see our cross-eyed friend is stirring in his sleep. Let's get out of here pronto and go where we can talk. Don't do anything foolish like running away, though. And remember that I used to be the featherweight champion of the Rosebud Social and Outing Club. By this time they were walking rapidly away from the stable proceeding toward Canal Street. To emphasize his warning, the reporter had taken Fenton by the arm. Now see here, son, he went on. You're already somewhat in my debt. That pirate would have gouged your eyes out in another minute if I hadn't been in ambush. You've got a story, and I want it. Give up what you know, and I'll return the jewelry, or else there's nothing doing. He stopped under a lamp post and looked Fenton over deliberately. His words were coercive, but his eyes twinkled with good nature. You'll have to keep it, then, unless I can get it away from you, said Fenton gloomily. I don't see that the story's any of your business. All news is my business. I represent the people of New York, who have a right to know what's going on, especially when it's as queer as you hinted at. When I saw you up there, they all thought that yarn about a jewel robbery was a bluff. I knew well enough it wasn't. I don't know what story you told, finally, but I'll bet it wasn't the right one. So when they bounced me, I hung around to see what you'd do. Murder was the last thing I expected. And even now, if you've lost seven million worth of diamonds, more or less, I fail to see how it is worth your while to jump this cabbie just to get back one gold locket set with rhinestones. To the casual debutante it doesn't seem to be worth the risk. Hence this request. 
put me on to the story. At present, I'm out on another assignment, but I may be able to work em both. What are you afraid of? If you want honestly to get your fortune back, I may be able to help you. If you know anything, you know that a good reporter can beat any detective in the central office, and I'm the star of the morning item. The fact is, said Fenton, I've given my word of honor not to tell. Ah, said the reporter, compounding a felony. All right, then, I'll tell you what I'll do. One last proposition. Going, going, gone. I've got to hang round Eldridge Street to catch a girl who ought to be due there pretty soon, according to my tip. My paper wants her, and also I have some important news to give her. I've got to break a sad tale. We reporters get queer jobs. Now, if you'll come along with me, decent, while I wait for her, I'll stake you to a cab afterward, and you can get up town for your pants. Meanwhile, I keep this locket as an evidence of good faith. It's your bail till I get ready to go after you professionally. That's the best I can do. While we wait, I'll enliven the vigil by as pretty a little tale of middle-class life as you ever heard in the papers. Fenton reluctantly consented. He was not anxious to become conspicuous by attacking the reporter, much as he wanted the locket, and Richmond's proposition seemed the easiest way of getting up town. They walked along Canal Street, therefore, and turned into Eldridge Street. In the middle of the block, Richmond turned Fenton up to a pair of tenement-house steps that commanded a view of both sidewalks. They sat down, perched a little above the dirty pavement, where the submerged tenth traded, played, or promenaded in front of them. Keeping his quick eye alert upon the passers-by, Richmond produced a roll of Havana cigarettes, and lighting one from the other, smoked them in a chain as he narrated his tale. The middle-class girl. Take it from me, old top. The bromidic center of New York City is situated at the corner of Broadway and 90th Street. That's where Mr. Middle-class lives. Call him a bromide, a philistine, or a man in the street. He's bound to have his nine-room apartment and bath somewhere thereabouts. Mr. Average Man is a broker. He owns an $1,800 motor car and hunts in the Adirondacks or up in Maine two weeks every fall. His wife is a good-looking middle-aged woman in black satin with the gray spots in her hair modestly touched up. She plays bridge and has a manicure masseuse come in every Friday or so. There's one son who seldom leaves Broadway at night and who is putting up margins during his lunch hour and always getting stung. Such was the Baker menage, business and theaters and bridge, and an occasional dance. But Miss Baker, Bessie Baker, was the lovely duckling in this family of male and female hens. At thirteen, Bessie changed her name to Elizabeth, did up her hair, lengthened her skirts, and began to open her eyes to the fact that she was hopelessly middle class and doomed to marry an insurance agent if she didn't look sharp thence to a small flat on a hundred and twenty-sixth street a baby and a gossiping life across the dumbwaiter of the next apartment elizabeth had aspirations and began to make plans for bryn mawr she went through high school pa was strong for the public schools and no nonsense about swell seminary life and was just about to try for the entrance examinations when a flurry in p d and q put father baker in a hole and zip the university education was out of the game for poor Elizabeth. 
Did the old man care? Not so. He never took much to the idea of making highbrow of Bessie. He thought it would spoil her chances for matrimony, you know the old idea. But the girl was really terribly cut up. Middle-class society was beginning to get on her nerves. All she heard talked was bridge and business, theaters and teas, from morning till night. In her world, romance was unknown. Nobody ever eloped. Nobody ever did anything great or criminal. Girls grew up, had children, and died without ever knowing an adventure. Men had mysterious vices. She knew of them as shameful, sordid acts that could never attract her. But to her vision, gents were always well-dressed, gloved, and caned, paying silly compliments, talking bosh, and sending violets. What was over the other side of the wall which surrounded her? That was what she wanted to know. She knew no millionaires and no paupers, not even a suffragette. No friend of hers ever got into the papers. No girl had a secret she could not and did not babble to all her friends. In her world the fairyland of science was unknown, the charm of philosophy unheard of. Literature was confined to the fifteen-cent magazines and art to the thirty-five. And there was a great big world outside her door, a world brilliant with blood, brutality, crime, poverty, suffering, private yachts, divorces, and luxury. She had never been south of 23rd Street. She had never seen the water except from Riverside Drive. Oh, for a man who could explain Nietzsche to her. Oh, for a man who knew the difference between de Maupassant and Balzac. Can you tell why Mendel has superseded Darwin? No more could Bessie. What was pragmatism? Who were these new post-impressionists she read of in skimpy paragraphs in Scribner's? How could intelligent men and women perceive charm in Debussy's discords? Yes, she had been abroad with her mother and Baedeker, but they had to stay indoors every night in Paris. They had never seen an anarchist or a slum, or a tea-taster, or a live poet. Now a girl who had something to do with the Delancey Street Settlement House happened to meet Bessie at a toy tea one day, and when the two got together for four minutes, Bessie's horizon moved north, south, east, and west ten degrees. The little middle-class girl discovered that while she and her ilk wandered through the desert of culture, far from both the upper and the lower strata of society, the prince and the pauper foregathered at wonderful houses in the purlieus and communed with each other at close range. She heard of university extension courses, of celebrated men who lectured to shop girls, of artists who made music, of socialist millionaires who married working girls, exhibitions of paintings and books and classes and clubs, and political economy, and sometimes W and Y. And Bessie dreamed a dream. How she made the break and got away, I don't know. She didn't tell me, but from what I saw of her, I knew that her will was stronger than the old man's, and her mother merely fainted away when Bessie packed her suitcase. Was it the socialist millionaire story that reconciled them finally? All I know is that Bessie Baker moved down to Rivington Street and got a job rolling cigars in a little tobacco factory at six dollars a week. She roomed with two Jew girls over a delicatessen shop 
and spent every night making hay with the social advantages presented by the Delancey Street Social Settlement. Nobody knew that she wasn't a poor girl, and so she was allowed to mix with millionaires and philosophers and high society ladies and visiting who's who's to her heart's content. Perhaps you think I'm exaggerating, but if I could describe one week of her new existence, you'd see how much fussy her life was on the east side than in Philistia. There were automobile rides to the residences of wealthy patrons on Long Island. There were boxes at the opera for the sweatshop girls. They were even taken to the horse show. That first week Bessie met Paderewski. She held the basin while he dipped his $25,000 hands into warm water before doing his stunt, and her eyes were within four feet of his facile fingers while he played his own minuet. Henry James? When he called and gave a talk on the metaphysics of rhetoric, she almost ate him alive. She was one of thirteen women, wage-workers, who dined with the Prince of Bulgaria, then studying American sociology. And she got to know the Swami Getchachabanda so well he told her his real name. Say, you ought to have seen Bessie dancing with President Roosevelt at a shirtwaist ball, and meanwhile she was learning to speak in double negatives and rubbing burnt matches into her fingernails for local color, building out her pompadour and wearing brass rings so as not to be caught as a middle-class impostor in that ineffable mixture of extremes. Nobody ever suspected that she worked because she liked it. By means of a few choice solecisms, she had butted into the most exclusive circles of brains and fashion and wealth. She was clever, all right. I'm for Bessie, strong. Meanwhile, she was working, and working plenty. She made cigars so much faster than the Yiddish girls in the factory that she got into trouble, and the foreman had to rescue her. For the first time in her life, she saw a man knocked down. The foreman did it to a chap who called her a scab, and then she realized that her blood was as red as a squaw's. The foreman took a fancy to her after that, and used to sit on the steps of the tenement where she lived and talk to her till midnight. He was a Russian, and had been in the fighting organization of the revolutionists all through the campaign of five. He explained the theory of the terror. He told of shooting behind barricades of the manufacture of bombs, of plots, conspiracies, heroes and martyrs of fifteen, spies and assassinations, and gore, till she gripped his wrist and gasped for breath. He had killed men, he had seen men hanged, he had worked in the Siberian mines, and had had five escapes from prison. Life was opening up big for poor little Elizabeth of West 90th Street. Meanwhile, she rolled stogies by day, and by night she put on a hand-washed shirtwaist and did high society at the settlement. Celebrities came and went. Lectures and musicales exemplified to her all that was finest and best in modern culture. Just watch Elizabeth, the president of a club of eighty women who did things. They fought for a public playground and got it. They shut up thirteen saloons. They established a self-supporting day nursery. They gave a fair, and Mrs. Ralph Waldo Billion was on the same committee as Elizabeth Baker. Didn't this beat life as lived at the corner of 90th and Broadway? 
Elizabeth drank the intellectual life to the dregs, and listened spellbound to the foreman's prophecies of the great social revolution. Then, just like in the yellow papers, came the millionaire socialist. He lectured. He spent his money on brawn photographs, Barry Lyons, and trips to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He started equality leagues and cooperative consumer federations. He contributed to the settlement magazine, fraternized with the working class, and at last he met Bessie Baker. Fate rang the bell. Her time had come. When Mrs. Baker, up at 90th Street, anxiously waiting for news from the front, heard of it, she was measured for a forty-dollar tailor-made corset and an acreage hat and began to make a study how the mother-in-law of a millionaire ought to eat asparagus. She cut a few old outworn friends and began to study restaurant French. She at last realized that Bessie had made good. The socialist millionaire was a rather effeminate youth, who wore soft collars and black Windsor ties, glib-spoken and so frightfully anxious to be a working man that he laid bricks in overalls on his country place. The wall had to be pulled down and rebuilt, but Tolstoy's precepts had been obeyed. From the moment he set eyes on Elizabeth Baker, any woman could have seen what was coming. He haunted her, discussed propaganda, the materialistic conception of history, the child labor law, and the adulteration of milk. He made love, sterilized with philosophy, and for a month or so they engineered a precarious courtship in the committee rooms of the settlement house, in the subway, and in chilly art galleries. And then he proposed. I'd like to have heard it. The man was dead in earnest. He was quite fond of Bessie, but marriage was mainly an opportunity for cooperatively managing a higher life for the welfare of the race. He believed in eugenics. Well, Bessie had about forgotten her high school English by this time. She made a wild effort to atavize back to the idiom of 90th Street, but her fascinating life in a cigar shop had accustomed her to the speech of those who really live. She was actually human at last. I'm sorry, Mr. Seymour, she said. It's tough on you to throw you down. But when I marry my husband, he's got to be something more than a mere theory. I've seen all kinds now rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, and I know what's good. Me and the foreman Petrovsky's going to hitch up and have a cigar factory of our own after Christmas. Take it from me, he's the only white man in the world. The reporter rose, yawned, and pulled out his watch. 10.15. Yes, fate moves in a mysterious way her wonders to perform, etc., etc., it just shows that water will reach its own level. Elizabeth Petrovsky is going to be the Joan of Arc of the labor movement. No, Mrs. Baker didn't show up at the wedding. I hear the family has moved to Philadelphia to live down the disgrace. But you ought to have seen Bessie, the pride of the ghetto, in cotton lace and silkaline, as happy as a queen at last. It was she gave me the tip about this Belle Charmian affair. Belle Charmian? Fenton was on his feet at a bound. Would you mind telling me who the devil Belle Charmian is? I've been hearing about her all the evening. You have? It was the reporter now who was eager. What have you heard about her? 
There was little enough for Fenton to tell, except that the name had come to him, repeated time after time, often enough to arouse his curiosity. He mentioned the fortune-teller's prediction, the chauffeur's story, and the magazine mention he had found. The reporter was disappointed. I thought I told you she was the girl I was trailing, he explained. There's a big story broken tonight, and she's wanted. Bad. But what is Belcharmian doing down in this part of town? Fenton asked, puzzled. Oh, she's got the sociological bug or something, too. Why, it was Miss Charmian told Elizabeth Baker about how the other half lives and all that. I knew she was interested in settlements and so on, and so I hiked down here and chased up the social uplifters. I got a tip that she was living along here somewhere under an assumed name and gets home about half-past ten. That's why I wanted to wait. If she doesn't show up by eleven, you can have my best breeches. He suddenly darted back into the doorway, pulling Fenton with him. By Jove, I believe that's her now, he whispered. Fenton saw a young lady approaching, walking briskly toward them. She was quietly clad in grey, and neither her carriage nor her costume were those of a working girl. There was a street lamp in front of the entrance to the tenement house, and as she approached it, she was more and more clearly illuminated. Something about her face struck him clearly, as if he half recognized it. Then just before the shadow of the lamp blotted it out, his heart suddenly stopped beating. It was the girl of the photograph. It was the girl of his dream. It was the girl with the level eyebrows, the whimsical smile. It is Miss Charmian by Jiminy, the reporter exclaimed, and he advanced toward her. The girl appeared to catch the words, for she turned with a quick glance at the two young men. Her eyes fell upon Fenton, and rested there for a moment with an expression of surprised interest. Her glance met his, and in that instant a flash almost of recognition seemed to pass between them. Then Richmond approached and accosted her. She answered without stopping, and, still speaking to her, he walked along by her side. In another minute the two, conversing with animation, Miss Charmian, showing eager interest, had turned the corner and were gone. End of chapter 5